It's great to see you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, a uh, chapter that we've been in uh, what feels like the last two months. Um, and we'll be in another week uh, before we move into Romans chapter 9, uh, where we'll pick up a little bit of ground. Uh, but in Romans chapter 8, uh, we're going to begin uh, here in just a few moments in verse 26. We're going to cover just four verses, uh, which may be an encouragement to you. Uh, one is because it, it seems like, hey, it's just a little chunk. Uh, the other encouragement might be, hey, we're going to get out early today. Uh, but I'm not going to guarantee that. But uh, here's the deal. As you read this, uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, uh, you come across a text where it just says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Um, and when I think about the text that we're going to read today, I, I can't help but think about our foolishness. Um, I saw a, a quick video this week, and uh, it was, a, it was a, a farmer out tending. I guess you would say a shepherd out tending to his sheep, and the, he pulled that sheep out of the ditch. And just as that sheep got out of the ditch, the farmer kind of crawls out, and all of a sudden that sheep runs right back and falls in that same ditch. And it, all at once I thought, Lord, Sheep are dumb. And then I thought, just confession. This is what a pastor feels like. They just keep going back in the ditch, right? Uh, but I'm a sheep as well. And then I, I think about that in the context of this text, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. I'm reminded of a story of three guys who were stranded on a desert island. And as they're stranded on the desert island, they come across a bottle. And uh, one of them begins to kind of dust off and, and look at the inscription. As he's rubbing off the sand to see the inscription, all of a sudden a genie appears. And the genie says, oh, wow, I've, I've been trapped for a thousand years. And so they begin to dialogue, and uh, it's just like the old tale Aladdin. And the genie says, you know what, because you have brought me out of a thousand years of, of sleep, he goes, I would love to grant you three guys one wish each. Uh, so the first guy goes, oh, wow, we've been stranded so long. He goes, I've missed my wife and family. He goes, I live in Seattle. If you don't mind, could you send me home? Poof, he's gone all at once. Second guy, he goes, oh, man, my, you know, I'm not married. But he goes, I, I, bet, I bet my fiance's wondered where I am. I wonder if she's still waiting on me. He goes, I wanted to see her. She lives in Texas. Can you send me to my fiance? Poof, he's gone. Third guy starts thinking about it, and he must have been an Aggie. Um, and he, he, he contemplates for a little while, and he goes, oh, man, I, I don't know. I just I don't know what to wish for. And he goes, I, I guess I do miss my friends, and, and I guess it would be nice to have them back here with me. Yeah, I, my wish is that my friends were right back here with me. And poof, all at once, the three guys are now stranded on an island. I think it reminds me of our prayer. Like, I, had a, I, I remember a pastor saying, you know, could you imagine what it would be like if God, unaltered, unfiltered, answered all of your requests? We'd run our lives in about 20 minutes. And, and that's the idea of the text. As we dive into Romans 8, 26-30, the idea of the text is, is there is a Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses. Now, when we think about weaknesses, there's a lot of weaknesses that we have. Uh, we're weak in spirit. Uh, we're weak in our flesh. We're weak in our mind. Um, our hearts are, are corrupt apart from Christ. Uh, Paul alludes to it in Romans chapter 7. I know the things I ought to do, um, but I struggle to do them. 
Uh, I know the very things I ought not to do, and I find myself doing them. Uh, he gives the implication of how we struggle in, our, in lots of ways. And here it is, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, when you see that word helps, it's a Greek word um, that's rather difficult to, to say. Uh, and it's just soon anti-lumbonomai. Y'all got that? Let's all say it together. Ready? You're like, no, let's not. Okay. Soon anti-lumbonomai. Now, soon means with. Anti-lumbonomai simply means help or to render or to partake. Um, the idea is soon anti-lumbonomai is to get on the other side. Uh, if, if you uh, have ever moved a house, you know, and you ever lived in a second-story apartment, anybody ever have that? Maybe the third-story apartment, and you're having to push a couch up, and on the bottom end of the couch is a friend, or perhaps in our marriage, we've moved so many times, and like, hey, Kelly, you get on one end, I'll get on the other. And so I'm like, hey, Kelly, let's go. And she's like, well, what do I do? And I'm like, I don't know, just pull, <laughs> push. No, too fast. No, you're going to push me off the stairs. And she's like, well, what do I do? And I'm like, I want you to help. <laughs> Sunanti Lumbonamai, get on the other side. But even as we get on the other side, like it's like, how, how do you know how to help someone? You know, you want to help. But here it is, the Spirit gets on the other side, and he knows what we need in our weakness. That's the word Paul uses. Now, Sunanti Lumbonamai is only used twice in all your Bible. You have it right here in Romans 8, 26. And there's one other interesting time that it's used. And it's used in Luke chapter 10. You might remember the story. I'm not going to tell you the whole story. Uh, but there is, um, there's two sisters. One of them is at the feet of, of Jesus. Her name's Mary. And then you've got the other. Her name's Martha. And Martha is complaining to Jesus because Mary is sitting with Jesus, and, and Martha's doing all the work. Y'all know the story? That happens in Luke chapter 10. And then Martha says in Luke chapter 10, verse 40, Lord, don't you care that my sisters left me to do all the serving alone? And then she says this, Then tell her to soon, soon auntie Lumbonamai to help me. Tell her to get up and get on the other side. Other use. That's the second time you see it. And what she's basically saying is, I'm here doing all the pulling. I'm doing all the weight bearing. You're, you've got Mary sitting at your feet, and I want her, Lord. Don't you care that she's not on the other side pushing? That's the idea. So when you see here that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, it is comforting to know a few things. One is that the Spirit is on the other side partaking. They, that the, the Spirit is leading us and the Spirit is helping us. And the question is, is how is He helping us? Well, Paul says, in our weakness. And here's the deal. Uh, when I'm studying for a text, I spend a great deal of time what I would be calling um, an exegesis of the text. It's to examine the text, to, to look, and oftentimes you'll hear me give you some Greek terms. You're like, I have no idea what that means. And the reason I do this is because I want you to have an accurate rendering of the text, not what I think. But listen, sometimes you need to take and, and what you would call isogeet. And what you do on isogesis is you bring in you bring in text. And the reason why is because here we see that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. But I think there's a handful of things we don't necessarily understand. One is who is the Spirit? Um, how does He help us? And what is our weakness? 
And if we bring a series of texts in, we can kind of answer all those questions with just Scripture. So let's do that. Y'all want to do that for just a sec? Uh, I'm going to give you some ways that you see the Spirit at work. And now if you were in a seminary class, uh, this would be called pneumatology. Pneuma is the Spirit. Tology is the study of. Um, and so you have the Spirit and the study of. So pneumatology. And here's what we're going to do. We're just going to bring in some study on who the Spirit is, okay? And I think it's really important that you know that if the Spirit is the one who helps us in our weakness, you need to know a little bit about the Spirit. Now, I'm not going to put it for you up on the screen. I'm going to make you do a little work. So you're either going to have to write down or you're going to have to go download my notes tomorrow uh, through the Stone Point News. Either way, it'll all be there. You can explore the text. You can check me out. You can fact check me. You can come back next week and debate me if you'd like. Uh, your choice. Uh, but I've done my homework. And, uh, and I think this is very close uh, to, to scripturally accurate. So I think it'll be helpful to us. But here's the deal. Who is the Spirit of God? First, it's to know that the Spirit of God is a person. Uh, the Spirit of God is a part of the Trinity. So you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I oftentimes like to say it this way, and usually when we're in starting point, which is helping people get connected to Stone Point and kind of begin to take their first steps, I'll explain the, the Trinity in this way. You've got God the Father, who's the architect of all things. You've got God the Son, who is the, uh, the, the builder of all things. And then you've got God the Holy Spirit, which is the one who indwells the house. And so here it is. He is a part of the Trinity, and he is... A person, which is really important. Because when you think about a person, you think about God, you think about um, who he is, and though we can't uh, really articulate what he would even look like, we do have a pretty good idea of what Jesus looks like. And we have a historical figure in which we go, oh, he's a person. Then we come to the Holy Spirit, and then we get a little wacky here. We get a little crazy sometimes when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And, and when I say that is if the Holy Spirit's a person, I just want you to realize you can't roll him up in a ball and throw him across a room. It, he's not designed to do that. He is a person. Now listen, I want to go ahead and tell you, and I'll go ahead and just be forthcoming. I grew up in a conservative setting in which we oftentimes do not give enough credence or power to the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, I think we have to be very cautious sometimes that if, if we're not careful, we'll want to project things on the Holy Spirit that you can't necessarily always find in Scripture in, in the contextual sense. So you really got to be delicate in your study of the Holy Spirit. But here's what we need to know. He is a part of the Trinity, and he is a person, okay? And then he has distinct purposes. Um, what is some of his purposes? He's a comforter. He's a counselor. He's an advocate. You see that in Isaiah 11, John 14, John 15, John 16. And when you see the idea of advocate or helper here, uh, you come across a Greek word, um, parakletos, uh, which literally means uh, where we would get paraclete from. You see it five times in the New Testament, four times as, uh, as a helper, one times an, as an advocate. But the idea is, is that the Holy Spirit is the person of God in which indwells the house. Jesus said, it's important that I go away, that a more suitable helper be left for you. The Holy Spirit is what is left, and he is a teacher, he is a guide, um, he is our counselor, our advocate, he's our paraclete, okay? And so in John chapter 16, verse 7 through 11, I'll put this for you up on the screen so you can see it. Uh, he says, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if, it, uh, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now, that word right there, helper, is the word parakletos, which is where you would get paraclete, the helper. 
If I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the rule of the world is judged. So he goes, he's going to come and help you. And he is going to bring about discernment, conviction. um, And he's ultimately going to bring about truth regarding a multitude of things. Okay. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there. He also helps us in our weakness of understanding or not understanding the Scripture because he is the author of all Scripture. Um, Peter, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, you can go look it up in, in uh, verses really 20 and 21. He just says, you know, there was no prophecy born in the will of men. Um, and then he says, um, he goes on in verse 21, and he says, do you not know that all men were carried along by the Holy Spirit? So basically, all authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has a work in the Scriptures. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, you might remember, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's the idea that the Holy Spirit is working in collaboration with the Father and the Son in bringing about the Scriptures. Why? Because He also reveals truth. He is the Spirit of truth. John chapter 14, John chapter 16, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. And so we just know that the Spirit guides us into all truth. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 13 through 15 is a great contextual evidence of that. Look at the words of Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, how does he define him? As the Spirit of truth, right? So when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said, he will take that is what is mine and he will declare it to you. So he is the revealer of truth. He also is the teacher. Um, John chapter 14, verse 26, 1 Corinthians 2, 13. Um, he promised that he would bring about to his disciples the truth and the revealing of all things. He doesn't stop there, though. He also initiates and brings about salvation. So he gives us a new life in Christ. The Holy Spirit helps in all of that endeavor. Um, I'm not going to put it for you up on the screen, but consider Titus chapter 3, verses really 1 through 7. I'm just going to read 4 through 7. And it says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. See the work there? Whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So the Holy Spirit is drawing men unto Himself, The Holy Spirit is ultimately bringing about the purposes of washing and renewal, that we would have a new life in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. But listen, he doesn't stop there. He also becomes the earnest or the seal of that exchange. So uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, you see it. Five, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 5, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, we see that the Holy Spirit is a seal and and ultimately um, seals the deposit, which is really helpful. You also see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, which I'll put for you up on the screen. Uh, And it just simply says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so the Holy Spirit has a part in redemptive work. Um, Doesn't stop there. He indwells believers. So after he calls believers, after he brings about uh, the salvation of believers, after he begins to, to uh, seal redeemers, he also indwells them. The Holy Spirit resides in the hearts of men. 
not, the, uh, not buildings and places built with uh, human hands, Acts 17, but what? Our hearts. And so the Holy Spirit resides in the hearts of men, Romans 8, 9 through 11. We just read about You could just go back and reference. Ephesians 2, you see it. 1 Corinthians 6, you see it as well. As the Spirit indwells us and He teaches us and guides us into all truth, what does that do? It convicts us of sin, just as we read about in John chapter 16 a few moments ago. So as the Spirit lives in us, He begins to convict us in regards to our former way of life, the things that we ought not to do, but we find ourselves doing, the Lord convicts us in. And so His Spirit is what's continually bringing about our sanctification every day. Um, he is our guide, John chapter 16, verse 13. You also see that in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says um, that apart from the Spirit, that his word is foolishness to men. Um, you cannot discern all that God has for you apart from his Spirit. So if you don't have a Spirit to guide you all into all truth, then you walk away and you go, I have no idea what they were talking about. You ever read the Scriptures and go, I just can't understand them then ultimately what you've got to ask yourself the question of is, do I know the Lord and does His Spirit live in me? Because if His Spirit doesn't live in you, then you can know that it's going to be very difficult to discern and also live a life that's guided by all truth. Now, we'll talk about that in a few more moments, but what I would just want you to realize, we live in a day and an age where the world is corrupt and evil. I think we see that even now uh, with all that's going on in the news. You ask yourself the question, well, why? It's because men are corrupt and ultimately selfish. James 4, James, the half-brother of Jesus, addresses the question. He goes, hey, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among us? Isn't it our passions that wage war? Isn't it our selfishness? So we ask the question, why are we living in a world where there are wars? It's because you have selfish men that desire egotistical gain and selfishness. And ultimately, if they're not guided by God's truth, they could be pawns in his hand, but ultimately be foolish. Now, how much of the world is not guided by God's truth? I would say a large portion. And what did Jesus say? He says, narrow are the gates that lead to life. And few find it. But many are, what? That lead to the gates of destruction where the path is wide and many will follow. You see the picture here? So here it is. He's our guide. He leads us to all truth, but what I want you to realize is that's narrow. It is to those in which he indwells. Um, as he indwells and guides us, he also bears witness to our salvation. Um, so he is uh, what confirms and verifies what God has done in us. Romans 8.16, Hebrews 2.4, uh, Hebrews 10.15. Uh, the Spirit also gives good gifts. He gives spiritual gifts for the edification of Christ and ultimately of his bride. First uh, Corinthians 12, there's a couple other passages that could be mentioned as well where you see these gifts that are given as spiritual gifts. But here's the, the last one too that I want to give you. is He also is an intercessor. He intercedes. And really that's what Paul is building up to when he says in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us, gets behind us in our time of weakness, he continues, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Now, intercedes for us with what? Groanings. Too deep for words. 
Now, when you see this idea of groanings, what Paul is doing is he's building on something he's already started. In verse 22, he talks about that creation is groaning in the last days, waiting for the redemptive purposes of Christ. Not only is creation groaning, but he says in verse 23, he goes, we ourselves are groaning. You're like, I didn't know I was groaning. Yeah, we groan. Uh, And as we groan, even in our spirit, God is bringing about his sanctification in our lives, ultimately bringing about the final glorification of all believers in the last day. Glorification is meaning that all is made right, and you and I are not only like God, but we know him fully. That hasn't happened yet because you and I are still here. But that is what we are groaning for. What's interesting is Paul then alludes to, and the Spirit groans as well. In the Greek, the word groans literally means groans. That's what it means. It's kind of a deep sigh, a groan. It's what you do when you get out of the, the, the bed in the morning if you're at, over 40. You know what I mean? You, you kind of, oh, I mean, you know, and, and then for me, I got to go take a hot shower and then the groanings kind of subside for another 24 hours, you know? But it's like I got to kind of get up and it's a groan. The spirit groans on our behalf. But the question is, is how in intercession with words that are too deep, for us. Now, when we look at this, I think if we're not careful, we can, we can take this and we can make it say something that it doesn't say. And what I think you can oftentimes do is think, well, this is speaking of a prayer language. I've studied this text carefully, and I cannot in any way say that this is talking about a prayer language. I think the key word here, even as you relate it to verse 26, is for we do not know what a Uh, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes. And the key word here in this text, and let's put it for you up on the screen, is for us, not through us. Paul could have easily said through us, but he didn't. He chose for us. And so in this particular text, what I think he's saying is, is the Spirit intercedes on behalf of God for us. Now, the question is, is what does this even mean? Well, Let's go back to, to, the, to the three guys on an island. One of them makes a fairly reasonable request. Another one makes a fairly reasonable request. And the third one takes everything and throws it in the ditch. And you, could you imagine being his buddies when they finally land back on the island with him? What in the world have you done? You look at that darn Aggie in the face and you just want to, you know... And you go, man, I've seen you do some stupid things, but this might be the worst, you know? And you just, you know what I'm talking about? Now, listen, can I just tell you that my emphasis on this Aggie and stupid things is because I have a friend that's sitting in this room that needs to hear this, okay? I'm a firm believer the Spirit wants to teach someone right now. No, in all seriousness, here's the deal. I think the premise of this text is that when you don't know how to pray, He intercedes on your behalf. He helps you in your weakness. Now, here's what I think it's really, really important. Is that it's hope for the believer that even when we have selfish requests, that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with words too too great that even we can't screw up our own prayer life. That's the idea. You remember the words of, of Jesus when he's talking about how to pray? Let's read them real quick. Um, in Matthew chapter 6, 
verses 7 through 13, Jesus says, And hey, when you pray, hey, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Then Jesus says, hey, don't be like them. Hey, don't be like the pagan or the Gentile. And then look what he says next. For your Father knows what you need before what? You even ask. How is that possible? You go, well, because God's sovereign. And God knows before you ever ask. No, I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the implication of the text. I think the implication of the text is the Spirit knows what we need before we ever know, ever ask. And what's incredible is that as He works in collaboration with the Father and the Son, we have all that we need, which is really encouraging. This, then Jesus goes on, He says, Hey, pray, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done underline that or make a highlight because that's the key even in our prayer life lord that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil now is that how you pray is that what you do every day you just get up drop your knees and say the the lord's prayer is that what you do no probably not right you you have a way in which you pray Now, here's the deal. What happens when you come across a set of circumstances in which you don't know how to pray? This week, I found myself in that place around Ukraine and Russia. I have found myself in prayer and, and even in tears, knowing that there are multiple purposes of God throughout the earth. One, that in order for Jesus to come back, that we must feel the pains of war. So that's a reality that is true. That that even as we see the world around us, we know that it is simply prepping the time in which our Savior would return for His bride. And in many ways, I'm hopeful. Yet then I also come to a passage in Scripture in Peter in which I know that the Lord is patient and He tarries long and that no one would perish apart from Him. And so now I wrestle. Lord, I want Your Son to come. And I know that all these things must come to pass, but Lord, I also know that there are many people right now in Ukraine and even in my family that don't know you, Lord. And they, I know that it's your heart that they know you, Lord. I know that you want to draw them by your spirit unto yourself. And so God, would you do that? At the same time, I'm also reminded of scripture as I told you in James chapter four, that selfish men are the ones that bring about war. It's why marriages are ripped apart. It's why families are destroyed. It's because we all, in many ways, have a Vladimir Putin inside of us. Let me say that one more time. All of us, apart from Christ, have a Vladimir Putin in in us. We're prone to start little wars in our family, right? We want to be right, scold our wives, manipulate our kids. When's the last time that you came to that reality? When's the last time as you go, Lord, would you just obliterate this man off the planet that you just reminded yourself, as such were some of you, Paul said. There was a day and age, Lord, that I was apart from you. Let me ask you this question real quick as we just think about this text. What if the patience of our God and our Savior ran out 10 years ago? Would you have known him? What if 20 years ago he would have come back You didn't have to wrestle with the wars and all that's going on, but would you have known him? Who wouldn't have known him? Who would have been left out? Do you see the dilemma in prayer? Oh, God, 
I don't know how to pray. God, there's a war. There are real people who are hurting. There are women grabbing guns and defending their country, and they should be teaching kids in a classroom. There is an evil man longing for power gain that needs to know Christ. How do you pray? It's kind of complicated. But I'm so thankful that when we do not know how ought to pray, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's really helpful. It means that I don't have to have all the answers in prayer. That as Jesus says, hey, you don't have to be like the Gentile who has this fanciful, ornate prayer in which you go before him and, and lay it out in a way that you think the Lord will answer. That there are times where you go, Lord, I don't know how to pray for my friend. Lord, I can feel their hurt. I can feel their pain. Lord, I can see in your word what you long to do in this situation. But God, I'm coming before you and I'm asking here that your spirit would intercede for us on behalf of these people. That's the text. That's the heart of it. That's the idea. Uh, Douglas Moo, a guy that I've read for years, great commentary, great theologian. He puts it this way. I'm not going to put it for you on the screen. I should have. Um, so it was, a, it was a pastor fell. But he says this, and I think it's really helpful. Got it in my notes. You can see it tomorrow. He says, I take it in this text that Paul is saying then that our failure to know God's will and consequently inability to petition God specifically and assuredly is met by God's Spirit who himself expresses to God those intercessory petitions that perfectly match the will of God. He then goes on, he says, when we do not know what to pray for, yes, even when we pray for things that are not best for us, we need not despair, for we can depend on the Spirit's ministry of perfect intercession on our behalf. It's the idea that you're the third guy rubbing the genie lamp and you pray something that just shouldn't be prayed. You ask for a request that shouldn't be granted because it's going to ruin your life and ruin your friend's life. It's as if the Spirit intercedes and goes, we're going to toss that one in the waste bin which is really helpful. But I think that's a good idea of the text. Y'all got that? Darn, I think that was a good exegesis. See the pride of man? And that's verse 27 continues. Look at it. It says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Basically, the idea is that the Spirit knows what our needs is working in collaboration with the Father to bring about the will of God, which is the key. That is the key. That is the key in all of it. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, may there be any other way that this cup could pass from me, but not my will, but what? Thy will be done. I don't think that's an excuse to not pray boldly. I don't think it's an excuse to not pray specifically. But what I want you to understand is the Spirit is working in collaboration with the Father and the Son to bring about God's purposes, which helps clarify even a mess in the world, that God is bringing about His purposes. Matter of fact, why would God bring about his purposes even when we don't know how to pray? Verse 28 answers it. And Paul is building on this case. Look at it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Wow, that's really encouraging, friends. So we know 
that for those who love God, all things work out together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I think it's important that you, you underline those who recall according to his purpose. So the key is, is that if the Spirit is interceding on your behalf, it's because he indwells you, and ultimately he's your advocate, he's your guide, and he's your helper. He's on the other side. And if he's on the other side and he's pushing and helping move, even when you don't know how best, you know that as he moves and as he guides, then it's ultimately for your good. Now, how does that happen? It happens because ultimately, as creation groans and as we groan, the Spirit also groans. And as all of this groaning is taking place, we can determine that it's for the good of those who love God. So, the good thing is nothing in life is wasted. Difficult diagnosis, hard. Ultimately, you can know that the Spirit is working, collaborating with the Father and the Son to bring about His best purposes in your life. Can you resist those purposes? Absolutely. Can your bride not see those purposes? Could your kids miss those purposes? Absolutely. See, the, the absolute idea of this is that God is bringing about His purposes. So what we need to know is, is that even as we look across seas to a global crisis, we need to know that if you're a believer in Christ, he can use all of those things according to his good will, to his good pleasure, to his sovereign plans, and ultimately for your purposes. Well, let me ask you a question. In the middle of war, you think anybody prays? Yeah. You think maybe pray a little more fervently in war than they did beforehand? I mean, think about you. You pray more in crisis? You better believe you do. Can God use crisis to bring about his sovereign purposes? You, you know it. Can God bring war and evil to bring about good things? I'll, let me ask you. Can he use war to bring about good things? Yes. You, 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 remember, you remember a set of brothers who sold their brother into slavery? lied to their father about him being dead? You remember the words of this man once he was found alive? He looked at his brothers, 11 of them in total, 12 total, 11 brothers. He looked at them in the eyes. He goes, hey, what you meant for evil, God used for good. Genesis 50, 20. That's the idea of this text, which just brings good news. You and I can, can do a lot of things to mess up our lives but you need to know that if the Spirit of God lives in you, one, he's guiding you to all truth, which means you ought to have less and less hiccups as you grow up in Christ. But even more than that, he's also working together for you. Verse 29 goes on and says, And for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Which is the good news of this text. He's saying, look, the Spirit is there to help you. He's helping you in your weakness. He helps you in your prayer life. He helps you even when good things ha or when difficult things happen. He's bringing about good purposes. And he basically says, and if he, if he foreknew you, if, if he knew you before the creation of the world, he's going to bring about all of these things that bring what? Conformity to the image of God. Ephesians 1 is a great text to compare with. Ephesians 1 verse 4 just says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Christ, before the creation of the world, chose us in him. And ultimately, the, 
conformity of us to his son as well. That's mind-boggling, but that's the text. Leon Morris says it this way, another uh, just great theologian. He says, Paul is saying that God is the author of our salvation and that from beginning to end, we are not to think that God can take only action when we graciously give him permission. God is not up there going, you know what? I'll do what you think's best. He is doing what he knows is best as he works in collaboration with himself, Father, Son, Spirit, for what's best in your life, even though you don't know what is best. And not only do you not know what is best, but ultimately God is bringing about his sovereign purposes and good pleasure, and he's willing to put you through the fire to accomplish good in your life and glory for himself. That's hard, though, isn't it? But that's why Paul then concludes somewhat in this subject. And in verse 30, he says, And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, if you're a Bible scholar or you study this, there's, there's something missing here. Look what he says. He goes, He predestined and called. And those he called, he justified. He justified, he glorified. There's a word missing. And it's the word sanctified. Paul doesn't mention that. And the question is why? Like why? Well, I don't know the answer, really. Um, but really what I think he's showing you is the process of sanctification is above. Uh, he, he's showing you this process of sanctification is God's bringing conformity of you to the likeness of his son, even through difficult times. But here, what he does is interesting because as he used the word predestined and called, justified, glorified. He uses these verbs as an, an aorist tense, and really it's a past tense verb, meaning they've already been completed. So Paul is speaking here as if everything here has happened already. Predestination and call, call to justify, justify to glorify. Now, if you know what glorification is, it means that as we stand before God and we're totally complete and we're lacking nothing, we've been made right, we have a new glorified body, that's glorified. That hasn't happened yet, right? But Paul writes this as if it has. And a lot of commentators would say, oh, why? Well, it's most likely that Paul is doing kind of a throwback even to Isaiah 53 and some of the other prophetic texts that would just kind of in some ways given you um, this this in some ways, a Hebrew, you know, poetic and prophetic sense of speaking as if something had already occurred. So in some ways, he's giving you this imagery to suggest that he is so confident that this is going to happen that he's willing to speak as, as if it already has. And that's ultimately Paul's confidence before Christ. He's just saying, look, if God's doing all of these things and his spirit's helping us in our weakness, if he's on the other side, hey, you just need to know that if he predestined you, he called you, if he calls you, he's, he's going to not only call you, he's going to, to justify you, justify you. He doesn't mention sanctify, but he goes, that might as well come to pass. And he goes, and he will glorify you. Paul is just simply saying, God is true to his word and you could take it to the bank even though you don't always see it or know it's best. Which is why, and we'll talk about this next week as we start kind of the end of Romans 8. In verse 31, we like to take it and leave it as a standalone. But what does he say? What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we love that as a standalone text. Now, but take that text and bookend it to what you've just read. Man, that really makes it strong. 
He helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray. He intercedes on our behalf. He's bringing all things to, to ultimately bring about the purposes of our Savior and the good of our lives. And the Spirit is bringing all these things together in conformity with, the, with you to the image of His Son. He's, he's predestined you. He's called you. He's justified you. He'll glorify you. Hey, if God's for you, then who can be against you? That's the key. That's the text. And so as we walk out of here, listen, may we watch the news and may we pray. When you don't know how to pray, ask the Spirit to intercede. And even if you don't ask Him, He'll do it anyway. Knowing that the Lord is up to fulfilling His purpose throughout the earth, our Bible speaks clearly to many of those purposes. We don't understand them all. May we live in conformity. May we live as if our days are numbered. May we make much of Him. And at the end of the day, may we just remind ourselves, Lord, if you're for us, who can be against us? Lord, if the flower withers, if all of this fades away, hey, the word of the Lord will stand forever. Some trust in horses, some in chariots. But for us, we're going to trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's the text. And may it encourage our hearts. Let me pray for us, friends. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would illumine us to your truth. God, I pray that we would know that you not only indwell us, but Lord, you want to teach us. And Lord, as you teach us, I pray that you would convict us, guide us, bear witness to us. Lord, help us to develop and grow into our spiritual gifts. Lord, intercede on behalf of us, even when we don't know how to pray. Lord, as we groan and creation groans, Lord, would you groan on our behalf? And ultimately, Lord, I pray that you would bring about your purposes in our marriages, in our families, in our country, around the world, even when we don't know what those are, we pray that you would make yourself known to the nations, even to the nations that as Americans we struggle in our flesh to like or pray for. I pray you would still, God, remove us out of the equation and make much of us. May we become weak so that you may become strong. We love you, we praise you, we thank you, and we give glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.